1: This is Jenna Ellis in the morning.
0: Good morning. It is Wednesday, February 7th, and the breaking news this morning, there was actually a lot of news coming out of yesterday, but late last night, uh, the House voted on several very important bills, and the first was a vote to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. And that failed in the House. The vote was 216 to 214. The Republican led House of Representatives failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the crisis at the southern border. This coming from Fox News, marking a major blow for House Republicans who have pushed for Mayorkas's removal. The House voted mostly along party lines, but Republicans suffered a number of defections, which torpedoed the vote. Four Republicans ultimately voted no. Take note of three in particular. Representative Tom uh, Mc, Tom Clintock from California, Ken Buck from Colorado, Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, and then a fourth, uh, Blake Moore out of Utah. But he switched his vote at the last minute in a procedural move to be able to bring the resolution back to the floor. So he has indicated that he would be a yes vote. If the resolution does come back to the full, uh, the full vote on the floor. So there was a lot of chatter on social media and other media outlets yesterday that were kind of grouping in um, Representative Blake Moore with the other three. So uh, this is why we have to always know not just what the the vote tally is, but the reasons for that and, and if there's something behind that. And in this case, it's because of a procedural move to be able to bring the resolution back to the floor. And speaking of the tallies of voting, the other thing that failed uh, last night in the House was the standalone funding for Israel apportionment of about 17.6 billion dollars in aid to Israel, and Joel Rosenberg will join us on later. Uh, join us later on in the program, and he actually has breaking news out of Gaza. Um, he messaged me this morning, so we'll get to that uh, when he joins us and ask him about this uh, standalone funding bill failure. Uh, but that also failed by an even larger margin, and a lot of the reason that Republicans some Republicans did not join in that vote was because there were no offsets. And so even though it was a good thing that it was a standalone bill, it didn't have Ukraine funding wrapped up in that bill, there were no offsets. So people like our friends Um, that are stalwart conservatives like Thomas Massey, like Representative Good, like Chip Roy, uh, they had all indicated prior to this being up for the vote that they needed to have some kind of offset so that we aren't adding to the national federal debt by just giving another 17 plus billion dollars in aid that we just don't have. Uh, to to the national deficit and um, so interestingly there were no offsets uh, that were in that bill um, speaker johnson has has pushed out some messaging on that but didn't really in my opinion directly address why some of those things and uh, were not in the bill and there apparently weren't any amendments before it was brought to the floor for a vote. And uh, President Biden had indicated previously that even if it passed in the Senate, which was unlikely that he would veto that. Um, So of course, his priority is uh, is a lot of money to Ukraine, not to Israel. And um, I have my own personal opinions on why the funding to Ukraine has been such a large priority and um, in part um, I'm of the opinion and and this is just my opinion that a lot of this funding to Ukraine may be uh, payback for the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Of course, that was specifically over a phone call to President Zelensky uh, from Donald Trump and that was the phone call, the infamous perfect phone call that led to the first impeachment of Donald Trump literally the day after the entire entire Russia collusion hoax. Uh, failed and that was a completely dead horse after the testimony of Special Counsel Robert uh, Mueller. And I know I'm going really, really far back in, in American history and and uh, all of these uh, these headlines. But uh, but this is why it's important to remember the chain of events. And uh, interestingly, uh, Biden has not made Israel aid a priority. Um, but the GOP, in my opinion, uh, needs to make. Aid A priority to Israel with offsets. I would agree with people like Representative Chip Roy that we can't just add to the national deficit by giving a lot of this aid and funding to other countries when we're not even securing our own border. And obviously, all of that is continuing uh, along the border and um, this this kind of standoff now between the states and the federal government. And we'll continue, of course, to follow that story. But I also wanted to get to the other uh, big breaking news from yesterday, which is that uh, President Trump was denied immunity by the federal appeals court so um, I had an opportunity to dive a little deeper into uh, this opinion and I spoke with the guys on uh, today's issues yesterday uh, right after this uh, this appeals decision was dropped and um and and there are overall um and what i said to them i i still think is true what you have to understand here uh, and and what i what i mean by that is you know after diving deeper into the opinion then you know sometimes there are some nuances you can you can bring out and discuss further um but overall if you missed that you can always go back listen to that uh, portion of the program in the last half hour of today's issues on afr.net but um but what i said yesterday and what i would say this morning is uh, that this was a unanimous decision that was handed down and it addressed for the first time uh, presidential immunity in terms of facing criminal charges. Um, We remember that the Supreme Court had already ruled back in 1997 a Clinton versus Jones. That was a landmark Supreme Court case establishing that a sitting president of the United States had no immunity from civil litigation for acts done before taking office, and this is the important point, unrelated to the office. So in particular, there is no temporary immunity or delay of federal cases until the president leaves office. So for stuff that happened before he takes office, he then takes office for you know the first four years or eight years. Um, if he wins a second term, there's no delay and kind of temporary immunity that covers for civil litigation for acts that would have been in His private citizen capacity. And that's what becomes really important about this analysis, because what the court here, I think, um, got wrong and and where they failed to really uh, address, I think, the most important issue for presidential immunity is that they said this in the opinion. Former President Trump moved to dismiss the indictment and the district court denied his motion. Today, we affirm the denial. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses that any other criminal uh, defendant would have. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him in this prosecution. So think about this. They They are essentially saying that presidential immunity only attaches while a president is in office and then basically it lapses so whatever a president his his decision making authority as the chief executive as soon as he leaves office now now he's just open for criminal prosecution by the opposing party uh this And this is this is so critical and put put President Trump aside for a moment, because I know a lot of people either love or hate Trump. And the issue of presidential immunity is so fundamental to our American system of government and our separation of powers that it is far more important. The decision itself on presidential immunity than anything that you may think about whether Donald Trump deserves it or not. That's not really the issue. The the courts of appeal on the, uh, the circuit court level and then also the U.S. Supreme Court, they're always concerned about the principle of what the law calls the ex-ante or the precedential value, what comes after, how this will affect other similarly situated cases down the line. So uh, so even if you you disagree regarding this particular instance, I'm much more concerned about what this is suggesting for future administrations and even current a sitting president. Does this mean then that Joe Biden, the, the moment that he leaves office, then uh, all of the Republican attorneys general and um, a, a future Republican appointed DOJ can then just go after him? Can, can we uh, can can the Biden uh, DOJ right now uh, go after a uh, George W. Bush for um, supposed you know prosecution of, of war crimes because they disagreed with some of his policy decisions uh, with the Iraq war? I mean, th- this now puts the judicial branch, which in our separation of powers, the judicial branch is supposed to be the weakest branch. This now puts the judicial branch higher in terms of scrutiny of policy decisions of a sitting executive in office, in the executive branch. And that is the danger of what this case has set. Because instead of analyzing this and saying, were the actions taken that were taken by president trump and the allegations in this indictment w- were they taken in the scope of his official office and his official duties or were they taken as a private citizen because you can be both at once there are actions that are pursuant to the office of the president those should have immunity and if immunity attaches it should be into perpetuity so that a sitting president is not concerned about his decision making while he's in office thinking he might have to face prosecution in the form of, of, of a judicial adjudication and review later on down the road when he leaves office. So those, those decisions that are within the scope of his policymaking and as official acts as president, those should have presidential immunity, just like we've established the principle and law of legislative immunity. You can't go as, as a private citizen or even as a prosecutor and sue legislators because you didn't like the way that they voted. So, for example, if you really didn't like uh, the way that those three uh, legislators and, and Congress members voted on the impeachment of Mayorkas yesterday, the court is not going to, they would kick it out based on failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted if you went, you or I went, and sued them for their no vote, because legislative immunity is important to the function of the legislative branch if they were subject to litigation or prosecution based on their policy decision making, they couldn't act because somebody is always going to disagree with decisions that they make. That's the nature of politics. That's why there are disagreements. And so this case, I hope that the Supreme Court ultimately does take this case. And even if they end up saying, no, presidential immunity does not attach to the actions of of the alleged actions of Donald Trump. That he has been indicted for by the DOJ, because that was in his private capacity as a candidate for president or however they they try to parse that, even if that becomes the ultimate opinion, I would be far happier from a presidential value that they at least parsed that issue, and it wasn't a matter of timeliness because if we have as precedent in the United States that immunity lapses as soon as a president leaves office, then we have basically completely neutered the authority of the executive. And of course, this will only leave Republicans in fear because Republicans are not going to just go after a, a, a Democrat for policy decisions that they disagree with. That's why we have impeachment and, and the impeachment function, because that's a, a quasi-political uh, remedy. And that has been given to the legislature as a way to hold the executive accountable. But there is no power, there should not be power for a prosecution of a former president simply because he leaves office. And I'll read this portion of This case again. So for the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. That is wrong. That is going to completely disrupt the nature and the power of the presidential office putting the judicial branch higher than the presidency. I hope that the Supreme Court takes up. I don't really have great faith in the conservative majority just because this case involves Donald Trump, but I hope that they are concerned about the ex-ante. So we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning, and we have to make sure we always pay attention to what these cases are actually saying in terms of their presidential value. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. Dominique really struggled with her faith when she found out she was pregnant. She didn't know how she could carry her baby to term, but she called on God for help and asked for a sign. That's when she ran into who she calls her guardian angel on the steps of the abortion clinic. This man told her there is a better way, and he walked her across the street to a preborn network clinic. When she saw her beautiful baby on ultrasound and realized that he was an actual person living inside of her, the answer became loud and clear. She chose life for her precious son. Each of these babies are truly miraculous, and every day, Preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby, or visit preborn.com. That's Preborn.com.
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
0: Welcome back. And our good friend Joel Rosenberg from uh, All Israel News He's the editor-in-chief at AllIsrael.com. Joins us now with breaking news out of Gaza. Good morning, uh, Joel. And so uh, always happy to have you join the program. So what is uh, going on in this piece just posted on AllIsrael.com?
2: Hey Jenna, great to be with you. So on Sunday, uh, I was invited in to actually go into the Gaza Strip uh, for my first time uh, with a small group of journalists. Uh, the IDF took us into Khan Yunis. That's the most. That's the largest city in the southern part of the Gaza Strip, and it is the stronghold of the Hamas terror leadership. It is the uh, is the place where. Uh, in Khan Yunis, where the IDF has had the most intense fighting for the last two months against Hamas terrorists. And the IDF, uh, led by a, a brigadier general, uh, Dan Golfus, actually not only took us inside uh, the center of Khan Yunus, uh, and you could hear machine gun fire all around us, uh, explosions. Uh, the war was pretty intense. But he actually took us inside a maze of terror tunnels that had never been seen by any reporters before. They had just discovered it. They had just cleared it with um, intense fighting down in, the, in that maze of tunnels. And what was astonishing, Jenna, was that we saw two main things. First, we saw uh, the underground bunker where senior Hamas officials were living, working, and directing the war against Israel. Uh, the general told us he believes that Yahya Sinwar, the, the, the top terror chief of Hamas, was actually in uh, that that very bunker. So that was chilling to actually be there where he had just been just days before. And they took us inside the cages where uh, at least 12 Israeli hostages had been held and had just been evacuated quickly with Hamas. Um, as israelis uh commandos fought their way into the tunnel so it was uh so this news is just starting to break here we i think i think we're the first at all israel news but we're not the only because nbc news was there um uh cnn uh sky news a, a few others cbn um but all those being television um i think we're the first to break it digitally
0: Wow, and this is incredible, uh, Jill Rosenberg, and this is at allisrael.com, and I'm uh, looking at this story as, as you're speaking, and you actually have some photos here as well of uh, the brigadier general and um, some of these reporters that are inside of these tunnels. You can see kind of a, a beautifully tiled and ornate kitchen um, in the underground lair, and, and and that's what this one is captioned, and then also um, a, a photo of some of these cages. I mean, so—, so How um, how quickly then did Hamas have to evacuate it? I mean, what what is going to be now the status of how these tunnels were discovered? And they've now obviously been taken over. So what happens to to all of this property now?
2: Right. Well, Jenna, the significance of this discovery of this particular uh, maze of terror tunnels The brigadier general told us is that he said you are literally standing in the most important tunnels that we have found so far. Why? Because senior Hamas uh, leaders, terrorist leaders, were in there. Like usually, you know, there's more than 350 miles. 350 miles, Jenna, of of tunnels underneath Gaza. They're all controlled wow. by the terror, so it's they're all terror tunnels, right? It's it's longer than this than, than the Le- London uh, subway system, known as the Tube, right? And so, but but not all of them have um, sort of the, the underground bunker or bunkers of Hamas leaders, right? Most of them are terror tunnels where where sort of you know the Hamas shock troops move through. They're very narrow. Uh, they're not ornate. They're not uh, you know. Th- th- where whatever sleeping quarters is just straight concrete, you are you know the, the terrorists are sleeping on the floors and they're carrying weapons through to, in order to pop up someplace and kill people and then go back down underground, or to set up new rocket launches right against Israel. What made this different is this this is the most important tunnel complex that they found. No one had ever seen it before, you no know, other reporters, and and they believe that Yahya Sinwar, the chief of the of, of Hamas in Gaza, and his Senior commanders were were there, so um, that's what what we're seeing is um, it's significant because it's it's it shows just how much the IDF is um, is winning. Um, They now are saying that seventy five percent of every Hamas terrorist, every the whole Hamas terror army, seventy five percent has now been either killed severely wounded and taken off the battlefield or captured. And now with, um, you know, they feel that they're just days away from gaining complete control of Khan Yunus, which again is the largest city in southern Gaza. There's only one more city of, of note, and that's called Rafa, right on the Egyptian border. And so the IDF believes that, it, you know, if it's safe enough to bring journalists in, it means, yes, there was machine gun fire, there were explosions all around us. But it was safe enough that they feel like they're just within days, maybe a week, whatever, of controlling Khan Yunis, which means there are not that many more places that Yahya Sinwar and the Hamas leadership can run. And we, the IDF, also believes, Jenna, that this is why um, Hamas is talking suddenly about a deal, right? Because they're under so much military pressure, and Israel is is you know is finding these tunnels. Uh, fighting their way into the tunnels, and Hamas had to move so rapidly, these Hamas leaders and, the, and and then taking the hostages had to move so rapidly that what you'll see in those photos, and we also have video um, embedded in, 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 a, in a related article um, uh, that I shot while I was there, you'll see that there are dishes left in the sink of the kitchen. There are, you know, there is uh, weapons, um, a cache of weapons that they've left, because and, and there's uh, clothing and bedding. They did all had to leave uh, half drunk uh, uh, you know, uh, bottles of, of, uh, of juice because they had to leave so quickly. They weren't expecting the IDF to, to, you know, to, to find them and, and, and hunt them down so quickly. So this is a big turning point, I believe, in this war.
0: This is huge breaking news. I'm speaking with Jill Rosenberg, who's the editor in chief of All Israel News, and I posted this story at my ex uh, page as well. Um, so you can read it there, but go to allisrael dot com and uh, you can you can click on this uh, breaking news story. So you mentioned that there's now um, talks of maybe a resolution. Uh, what does that look like, and what is the the potential outcome?
2: Well. Because of this intense military pressure that, that Israel is putting on Hamas and the fact that their, their forces are being degraded and their leaders are being hunted and that you, you're now seeing uh, headlines here in Israel. I, I can't say what is being uh, you know, uh, reported in the United States at the moment, but um, is that Hamas is starting to talk, and they haven't been talking for the last couple of months. All right, we want a deal, we want a deal, we want a deal. But their deal is, we'll give you all your hostages and, your, and, and, your, and the dead bodies that we have and, and a few uh, military soldiers that we've captured. We'll give it all back to you, but we want a permanent ceasefire, and we want Israel to completely withdraw from the Gaza Strip. Well, that would be asking Israel to surrender, and that's not going to happen. But there is a lot of pressure inside Israel politically on the government to make some sort of deal, because... You know, we're about 125 days or so, 126 days uh, into this war, and our hostages. There's about 136 left. They, 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 are, you know, they're, they don't have much more time. I, I interviewed uh, hostage families on my TBN program a few days ago, the Rosenberg Report. These hostage families are saying we need a deal now because, you know, anyone who's wounded, they're not getting antibiotics, they're not getting medical care right? And the claustrophobia, being down in those tunnels, Jenna, again, I never even imagined, I never imagined being Jewish, Joel Rosenberg, right, or an evangelical, an Israeli, to actually be in Gaza at all, much less in a terror tunnel. And it is hot, and it is humid, and it is dark, and it is claustrophobic, except in the expansive sections where the Hamas leaders lived. So their time is running out, their capacity mentally, physically, to survive these, these Israeli hostages and American hostages. Remember, it's not just Israeli citizens. There are American citizens and several other nationalities also being held. So the clock is ticking. How much more can they take? And um, so there's pressure inside Israel to make a deal. But Prime Minister Netanyahu, of course, is saying there's no way we're going to surrender. We're about to win. But, yes, we want the hostages back. So how do you thread that needle? I actually don't know.
0: Yeah, that that will be uh, very interesting to see if they can come to a deal. And uh, probably this is the first overture. And then if they even agree to further talks uh, because of the hostages. And I just I cannot imagine, uh, Jill Rosenberg, just that experience that you had going into these terror tunnels and basically seeing uh, what is going on from the Hamas side uh, almost live. I mean, this is. Um, This is an incredible uh, discovery, and I'm so grateful that you had the opportunity uh, to go in and provide this kind of reporting. And so you mentioned also that there are still American hostages, and um, just uh, late last night, the U.S. Congress uh, voted down the standalone Israel aid package. Um, How important is that to the overall strategy that uh, in israel i mean it, did that was that even a blip on the radar of the media there or is it more focused on all of all of this other stuff that's going on that you're talking about
2: well we absolutely here in israel need american support politically financially i mean this is A brutal war by people who have sworn to kill us all and to launch another October seventh and another and another and another until they kill us all. That's that's you know that's they're on the record. They're out. They're saying that on television. Hamas leaders who live in other countries. Um, So it's a genocidal enemy. We have to defeat them, but we also have to get our hostages back. And you know the, the Biden administration is not putting enough pressure on Congress to get this deal done, and Democrats in Congress are not being helpful. But there's more than that. There's more. Uh, President Biden isn't doing enough to pressure Qatar, the Gulf, uh, the small, tiny Gulf country that supports Hamas, where top Hamas leaders are living in Doha, the capital of Qatar. We have a, you know, we have a military base, the U.S. CENTCOM base is in Qatar. So the United States, the Biden administration has enormous leverage over Qatar. And Qatar is the funder, actually Iran funds, but through Qatar, to get money into Hamas. So uh, how is it, first of all, that the United States is an ally of a country supporting Hamas in this genocidal war, right? That's insane. And then why isn't the Biden administration putting the leaders of Qatar in you know, a hammerlock, to use a wrestle, an old wrestling term from high school, and forcing them, look, we're either going to pull out and cut you guys loose and consider you a pariah country, or you're going to force Hamas to give up all the hostages immediately. We've got to build much more pressure on President Biden and his team to, to force Qatar to force Hamas. This is the only way I believe it's going to happen in the end. But I will say one positive thing. Jenna, you know, I'm not just a reporter. I'm an evangelical follower of Jesus Christ. And when I was standing in those cages myself, you'll see a picture of me standing in, those, uh, those cages where those 12 Israeli hotches were held, I had an opportunity when the reporters moved to a different chamber to just stop and pray and pray and ask Jesus Christ, the Lord and King of the universe, to protect those hotches, let them free, strengthen the IDF, give us victory, um, and it was very powerful. Um, I was with one other Christian reporter, uh, Chris Mitchell of uh, the Christian Broadcasting Network, uh, CBN, and to be together there praying in the name of Jesus Christ uh, for the liberation, the salvation of all those hostages, and, of course, the liberation of all of Gaza uh, from this terrorist, uh, this Hamas reign of terror. It was pretty powerful and also emotionally uh I don't know. Confusing, I guess it, it was surreal, Jenna, to be in the epicenter of evil, where just days before hostages were suffering, and Yahya Sinwar and the Hamas leaders were living and 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 waging this war, and then suddenly we're standing there. Um, it, it was it was an extraordinary moment, and, uh, and I believe it's a major turning point in this war. Israel is winning, but we've got to keep praying. And our campaign at All Israel News is hashtag set the captives free, right? Because ultimately only the Lord, God himself, has the supernatural power to give Israel that victory and force Hamas to let all these hostages out. And that's what we're praying, and we're not going to give up.
0: Absolutely. And we have to remember the power of prayer and that God commands us to— to pray, and that we can petition the Lord with thanksgiving. And there is uh, a lot to still be thankful for that the tide is turning, uh, that this is turning in Israel's favor, but that the Lord in his sovereignty would uh, give Israel the victory. And uh, Joel Rosenberg, how can we continue to, um, in, in America, and, and I know this seems so distant to a lot of people um, who are just stunned, as I am, by uh, your firsthand account of this, how can we continue um, to pray and support Israel?
2: Well, I appreciate it. Well, I would I would start where where you mentioned a few moments ago. Uh, we've got two articles um, posted. One of them includes uh, the, about, about an eight minute video of me taking you inside these tunnels. I think if people would um, go to allisrael.com, com, which is all Israel news, com, find those two stories and post them on every social media channel you have, you know, and ask people look at this, see what's happening go inside the the, the actual cages with Joel and then pray for the immediate release of these hostages and then close it with hashtag set the captives free. I believe that that, uh, that, uh, Christians all over the country, all over the world can have enormous impact and these videos will help you understand what it's like and the urgency of the task.
0: Well, let's get that trending. Hashtag set the captives free. Go to allisrael.com and, of course, stay in prayer for the safe return of all of the hostages and a victory for Israel. Joe Rosenberg, always appreciate uh, you and praying for your safety as well. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Thank you. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, CHministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost-sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advanced That's chministries.org slash afr. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash afr. Make the switch today with any time enrollment.
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
0: Welcome back. And as compulsory vaccinations and vaccine injuries of all kinds, not just the uh, COVID quote-unquote vaccine, uh, remains very controversial. And uh, in the midst of litigation across the country, including the Supreme Court, there is a very important case that is being litigated uh, that is now on the Supreme Court agenda uh, that is being litigated by we, the Patriots USA organization and Brian Festa, who's the vice president and co-founder and a lawyer himself joins me now. So Brian, um, this is a very interesting case out of Connecticut. Uh, what is going on in this case? And I know that you are very, uh, very involved in, uh, health freedom activism and thank you for your work. So, uh, where's this case situated?
1: Hi, Jenna. Thank you for that. Um, This case stems from the April 2021 repeal of the religious exemption to mandatory school vaccinations in Connecticut. So as you're aware, um, there's only a handful of states that do not allow religious exemptions, but they're big ones. California, which repealed its religious exemption in 2015. New York, which repealed its religious exemption in 2019. Maine, which repealed its release exemption in 2020, and Connecticut, which repealed its release exemption in 2021. Um, do you see a pattern there? There's been <laughs> year after year uh, the big pharma lobbyists have been going into state legislatures and trying to get them repealed all over the country. Um, New Jersey was on the list. We, I was part of the activism that you know battled and fought that back, which is now referred to in the medical freedom community as the Battle of Trenton. Um, and then other places, even, um, you know, other battle so-called battleground states like Massachusetts, I've helped them. I've testified for them. So it's been an ongoing battle for years that I've been involved in, as well as my business partner, Don Jolly. Uh, she and I have been involved in this for, for many years, actually, even before COVID. But this was right at the height of COVID, April of 21, Connecticut repealed this religious exemption. But what Connecticut did that these other states that I mentioned did not do is they left, not only left in place the secular medical exemptions, which I'm totally in in support of. We want there to be medical exemptions to vaccinations, but they also grandfathered in some 8,500 students who already had exemptions on file. Why is that significant? The reason that's significant is because the state has to prove Under strict scrutiny, if this is a First Amendment violation of religious freedom, which I believe it is, they have to prove that there was a compelling state interest, some sort of public health emergency with low vaccination that necessitated taking away this religious exemption. Well, how can you make that argument with a straight face if you're grandfathering in 8,500 students, some of whom, these are K-12 through students, will will be in public schools and private schools, because this was for public and private, For the next 12 years, if it's such a public health crisis, why would you leave all of these students in school? That's a major problem. So, um, you know, we can get more into the legal analysis if you'd like me to, but that's the gist of it.
0: Well, and Brian Festa, I mean, clearly they're not making this argument with a straight face. They're just wanting control. And we saw through um, the entire weaponization of so-called emergency orders and the denying of uh, religious exemptions in some circumstances for that uh, vaccination that um, this is all just about control. And I think you're totally right uh, with the big pharma lobby. And so, um, th- this this case, though, is about all compulsory vaccines for school attendance, not just COVID, right?
1: Correct. Actually, COVID is not yet, I say yet because they have discussed it, but it is not yet uh, mandatory for school attendance in Connecticut, even though it was added to the childhood, the recommend, recommended childhood schedule by the CEC, unbelievably, with all of the evidence of it not being safe or effective. Um, they did add it to the childhood schedule, but um, this case is now at the United States Supreme Court on a cert petition, as you know, but for your listeners who may not know, that is essentially an appeal, uh, and you, the Supreme Court's review is almost always discretionary, uh, so the Supreme Court doesn't take many cases. There's about seven to 8,000 petitions, cert petitions filed, uh, uh, appeals to the United States Supreme Court every year, and out of that, they take maybe 80 cases. So you know the the odds are certainly against us, but something big happened, Jenna, on Monday of this week. Uh, we were scheduled to be in a conference just on the on the agenda, which doesn't mean anything. You can still end up on the dead list, uh meaning a case that's not even discussed by the justices, even if you're on a conference agenda but then, out of the blue on Monday, I get this notice from the Supreme Court because I'm you know counsel of record, saying that a response has been requested of the state and the other respondents, which is huge because that signals that either one justice or one of their clerks wants the state to respond, wants more briefing on this, which means to me they're probably going to discuss it. They're probably taking a very careful look at this case and considering it for a grant, uh, a cert grant, which would mean we would get a hearing before the Supreme Court. Does this mean we're definitely going to get one just because they asked the state to respond? No. But the state had waived its response during the initial time they had to file a response after after we appealed they said no this is basically a frivolous case that's usually an indication that they're trying to signal to the court listen it's not even worth our time to respond we don't need to file a response so they waived their response but the supreme court came back just two days ago and said no you're going to respond we want to have a response where we're looking at this case so that's huge and it gives us renewed hope that um there's, we think, a pretty decent chance that we're, we're going to get before the court on this case.
0: And so that uh, that response from the state of Connecticut is required by uh, March 6th, so uh, about a month from now, and listeners can be praying that the Supreme Court takes up this important case and uh, does grant that cert petition. And so what is the, what is the actual issue that uh, you're asking the Supreme Court to review or the certified question?
1: So there are a few of them, but uh, the main issue that 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 the, the uh, Second Circuit ruled against us on was saying that this was a neutral law of general applicability under Employment Division v. Smith, which was a, a seminal case that came out in I think 1990. It was about you know uh, Native Americans who had used AOD in the workplace was part of their religious practices. They maintained they should be able to and they were denied unemployment benefits as a result. So the state, you know, these employees uh, going up against the state, and the Supreme Court ruled that, no, you know, for things like that, the state can regulate, the state doesn't have to allow religious freedom for every single thing. Uh, so you can see how this kind of applies to our case, uh, and they're making the argument this was a neutral law of general applicability. But just Judge Bianco uh, from the Second Circuit uh, gave us a great defense in the case, even though we lost to the Second Circuit, he was the one dissenting judge, it was a three-judge panel, and he said, you know, no, he didn't see it as a neutral law of general applicability because you're still allowing um, secular exemptions but not allowing religious exemptions. So how is that neutral? You're going to say, okay, you can opt out of vaccinations if it's not for a religious reason, but now that it's for a religious reason, um, you can't. So. We think employment division at the very employment division v. Smith at the very least needs to be narrowed, redefined, because it's being misapplied all over the country. We explained in our cert petition, which you can read, it's linked on our website on this news announcement. We explained how there's a circuit split all over the country in applying employment division v. Smith, which, as you know, is very important for getting Supreme Court review when you can show that there's been a pretty deep divide among the circuits. And um, we actually believe it needs to be overturned, which at least I think three of the justices were leaning in that direction in the Fulton versus Philadelphia case, the city of Philadelphia. Um, that was, I think, two years ago. They were sort of leaning in the direction of overturning Smith. So they've already kind of hinted that they're thinking about that, and this case would give them another opportunity to examine that. So the, the import of this case cannot be overstated. Um, this case has the potential to restore religious exemptions for school attendance, not only in Connecticut, but in other states where it's been lost, such as California, New York, and Maine, and preserve them all over the country, everywhere they're being threatened. So anyone that believes in religious freedom, medical freedom, that you should not be mandated to inject something into your body, this could be uh, really a landmark case, and we would really appreciate your support. You can check us out at wethepatriotsusa.org to make a donation. Uh, or just to follow us, so sign up for our email list. Subscribe, click contact at the top of the page, and subscribe to our email list.
0: And the importance of this case absolutely cannot be overstated. And Brian Festa, I so appreciate your work in this field. Um, I agree with you, and I think um, most conservatives and certainly uh, the conservatives that are lawyers have have long felt to that um, employment. A division versus Smith should be at the very least narrowed or overturned um, because we can see how that application has um, just just gone completely uh, haywire and has really narrowed religious freedom. Uh, completely antithetical to the text and the intent of the First Amendment, and I was just talking um, in the, in the first segment of this show about the presidential immunity case that the D.C. Circuit uh, just ruled on yesterday, and how you know, regardless of uh, President Trump aside, I mean, the, the the presidential value is so important, and we can see why that is with a case like Employment Division versus Smith, and how the Supreme Court has just completely abused that, and um, and it's interesting that 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 medical exemptions are still allowed but a religious exemption which should actually be treated as a much more fundamental right even than medical freedom which of course is but the first amendment applies that that would be excluded while you still have medical exemption so um so this is a very important case and continuing uh, with all of the the medical freedom and and the First Amendment religious freedom issues that your organization does, um, you have a new uh, and your first feature film that is called Shot Dead and uh, this is now um, at the international film festival and and where can people see this?
1: Yeah, so we were honored to be featured as an official selection of the Santa Monica International Film Festival uh, this year 's installment of that festival. And we, that was just this past weekend on Saturday. Uh, but it's still going on virtually uh, through the 17th of the month um, at the Santa Monica Film Festival website. But you can watch it anytime on our website, which is shotdead.org. That's our page for the film. It's also linked on wethepatriotsusa.org. But um, this film now has over, I think yesterday I checked, it was 1.36 million views on just on Rumble um, not to say, not to even mention the other places it's been it's been shared. Um, so this is really catching fire, and it's great because it features the stories of three children who tragically lost their lives after getting the COVID shot. Uh, one of them just five days after getting the COVID shot. Uh, this is really undeniable that they died from these shots, and it features these stories told by their parents. So it's a heartbreaking film. Get a box of tissues to watch it. It's hard to watch, but it's something that everybody needs to watch so that this doesn't happen again. And so these children don't die in vain. Watch it, share it. Um, and we are also exploring litigation to help these families as well. That's explained in the film and also on our website.
0: Uh, It it is just so tragic, some of these stories and to and to think that there isn't accountability. And so where is the where are we currently in terms of litigation specifically on the COVID vaccine with this uh, kind of liability shield that Congress has put in place?
1: Yeah, obviously, that's really tough, as you know, because we have the PrEP Act, which provides um, basically blanket immunity for any uh, countermeasure uh, that was used under emergency use authorization, as was the COVID shot. So it's very hard to see the manufacturers, but there is a theory. It was first floated by Steve Kirsch a couple of months ago, around the time, our, right around the time our film was released, actually. And that says if you can show the, that some of these batches of shots were adulterated, and we believe we do have evidence of that, uh, they were contaminated, um, that you can um, eviscerate that shield. There's already been a case out of Michigan with regard to remdesivir where that happened. Um, they were able to show that, that not everything was disclosed to HHS, the secretary of HHS, in seeking uh, the emergency use authorization. Then you don't get the liability shield. Basically, if you lied, if you hid something, then you don't get it. And we do have um, evidence there are some plasmid biocontaminants In these shots that were not revealed Uh, we are still building our case so I can't say too much about that Um, and we are still still trying to raise money for that but Ernest Ramirez and uh, the Martin family who are featured prominently in shot dead have already agreed to be plaintiffs Um, so uh, we're working on that right now but we do believe we have we have a theory there to overcome the prep act but it's it's gonna be an uphill battle it's not this is not a slam-dunk case Uh, Because obviously, you know, Congress put that immunity shield, that liability shield in place to make it, you know, nearly impossible to hold them accountable, which that needs to be overturned in and of itself. That's a whole other conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I couldn't agree more, especially with the emergency authorization use. I mean, there's a provision there that you have to um, have a knowing consent. And, and if you don't have all the information, then, of course, uh, you can't you can't voluntarily consent. Uh, and certainly, this shouldn't be compulsory. But um, Brian Festa, we'll have to have you back on again soon to talk about um, all of this more in detail. I could have done an entire show with you. But I um, so appreciate that there are lawyers like Brian Festa and everyone at his organization at we the patriots usa doing this important work there are not enough christian conservative lawyers that are litigating these cases so if you can please get involved and um, if you want to make a donation it's at we the patriots usa.org and if you want to reach me and my team you always can email us or post on social media jenna at afr.net make it a great day for the lord I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com AFR and sponsor an ultrasound?